Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John and a quick PSA regarding my new virtual men's group that meets on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. There's only a few spots left, but I thought you might want to know about it. It's a quick, easy, and cheap way to work with me. And maybe some of you have a career. Maybe you've made some money. Maybe you have a reputation for yourself at work. But maybe what you lack is things like happiness or purpose, a fulfilling relationship or a healthy sex life, the passion, happiness, and ease that you once had with your spouse, an emotion other than numbness, disconnection, or irritability. This group is for men who are trying to be values-driven, interested in lifelong learning, and curious about how to become the best possible versions of themselves. The group is not for men who want to remain in the comfort zone while sitting at home watching TV. So again, group meets weekly, Wednesday, 7 p.m. It's only $95 per session, and you can call 510-863- 0057 for more details. That's 510-863-0057. And now on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with another episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And interesting timing today, I'm talking with Michelle Dickinson about resiliency. And just last Thursday, I had another eye scare. I went to an ophthalmologist. He saw a retinal tear and sent me to a retinal specialist. When I got to the retinal specialist, he took a look and said, oh, there's not one tear, there's 10. And if we had waited until tomorrow, you could have had a retinal detachment. So keep in mind, this is my good eye that we're talking about here. In the other eye, I've already had three surgeries, two retinal surgeries, one corneal surgery, and was pretty much functionally blind in that eye for seven years. So it was a little bit alarming. Um, In any case, went into the operatory with him. And he gave me four injections in my eye of lidocaine, which was, you know, I guess my personal version of hell. And then he spent an hour zapping my retina with a laser mounted on his forehead. And he was saying that, wow, this is, you know, more than I've ever hit anyone with this laser. And it was so bad that after 45 minutes, the laser was heating up on his forehead and he would have to take breaks. He was sweating. He was breathing heavy. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, let's, let's get it done. And it's interesting because I got home from that and I I couldn't see. I was glad just to get home because it was storming and I drove after that, which probably wasn't the smartest, but didn't have an option. And, you know, felt what I had to feel. Like I was really grieving for a bit because I was faced with the possibility of losing my eyesight. And after about 12 hours, was able to recover and begin to bounce back and start to work on meditation using visualization to help heal that eye. So now I'm going to bring in Michelle and we're going to talk a little bit about resiliency. And I'm really looking forward to this interview. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. John back with Michelle Dickinson. And Michelle is a resilience coach, workplace resilience strategist, author, and a TEDx speaker. She's the author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. She's on a mission to help people preserve their emotional well-being so they don't hit burnout. After years of playing the role of child caregiver to her bipolar mother, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. She also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with mental illness after experiencing her own depression following her divorce. She was instrumental in building the largest and fastest growing employee mental health employee resource group while at her Fortune 500 company. And she believes every organization can have a culture of compassion. Michelle, welcome. Nice to have you here. So awesome to be here. Thank you for finding me and inviting me. Absolutely. And how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I was just complaining to you before how busy I am, but that's a good thing because I get to do what I love to do. It is. Um, So tell me a little bit about your story. How did you get to this point in your life of being a resiliency strategist? Yeah, you know, it's been quite the journey. I would say if you would ask me even five years ago, if I would be doing this work, I would have been like, you're crazy. No way. Um, I was minding my own business in a corporate job. I was really... um, I thought I would retire from a corporate, 
you know, career, retire into the sunset, whatever, but different, different things unfolded. So one of which was the TED talk. So, you know, growing up with a mom who had bipolar disorder was not something, it wasn't something I ever really spoke about because listen, I was just, I was just proud that I survived it and, and like became a contributing member of society, given all of the abuse, like the mental, the emotional, the physical abuse. And congratulations on that. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> so thank you. So I was just happy that I had just emerged from that and became, you know, a contributing member of society. But what happened was I found myself at lunch one day telling my colleagues who, I don't know how this topic even came up because it was taboo even in my very stuffy corporate culture, but it came up and I told the story of my mom. And then before I knew it, I was being nominated to give a TED talk about it. Like my colleague nominated me and I was like, oh, well, okay. Um, but it was an amazing and incredibly vulnerable uh, thing to do. And it actually like changed the entire trajectory for my career, my future. And I'm grateful for that. Like, I'm, part of me wants to go back and thank the woman that nominated me, to be totally honest, because I would never be where I am. Anyway, so I give the TED Talk, amazing reaction from my peers. Now I'm doing this on a private TED stage within my company. So I have to tell this very vulnerable story in front of my peers. But when I do, I realize that this power of storytelling, right? People feel like they see a little bit of themselves in your story. And so uh, almost like a door is opened and then you're able to engage and talk to people about what they've been through. So that was phenomenal. And that inspired me to go on and write my memoir. So I wrote my memoir, became a very outspoken mental health advocate, was doing a lot of public speaking, did a whole book tour, which was like an incredible experience for someone who had never been on television, which for me was just like, wow. So that was phenomenal. And then I started to really think about like, well, what can I do with this voice? So um, I started to play around with like, well, what would I do if I, what, if I didn't have to work? And then before I knew it, it's almost like serendipity. <laughs> my position in my corporate job was eliminated. Uh. So I had to decide, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back into a corporate role or am I going to go and like be the change that I want to see in the world? To be quite honest, like I was like, I could do more. I want to do more with my story. I want to help people. So I took a leap of faith and I started my company and the rest is history. I decided to, the original plan was go and teach compassionate work environments because the problem that we have in the workplace is people are still afraid to talk or acknowledge if they are struggling or have someone at home they're caring for and struggling. So I was like, let's just shift every corporate culture so it's more compassionate and empathetic. But then when the pandemic hit, what was really needed was resilience. And so resilience has taken on a life of its own for me because through my own depression, I learned skills to help me. And now I just want to share them. So let's let's talk a little bit about resiliency because I, I was saying at the beginning of the show before you came on that just last Thursday I had a really scary incident involving my my good eye my left eye where I was seeing floaters went to the ophthalmologist he said oh you've got a retinal tear so they rushed me to see the retinal specialist he took a look and he said no you don't have one tear you have ten tears and. I, that's my good eye. Like my, my other eye, my right eye, I've had three surgeries and have been functionally blind in that eye for about seven years. It's gotten better recently, but it was scary as hell because then he's, you know, worked for an hour with a laser on this left eye. I left blind in that eye and hoping that it, that it recovers. And, you know, when you talk about resiliency, I think one of the steps for me is feeling what you feel up front. So I really, when yeah. I got home, I just cried. Yeah. I mean, I was broken for about yeah. 12 hours. And I just yeah. thought, I'm just going to go with this and grieve because I don't know where my sense of sight is going to be after this. Right. The next morning, somewhere in mid-morning, I started to pull myself out of it and think, okay, what do I, how do I help myself best? Right. So what's the next small step I can take yeah. in my own healing? So how do you think of resiliency? Yeah, you know, there are two ways that I approach my clients in my resilience coaching. And one is through what they're doing every day to 
boost their resilience and how they feel energy levels and stress levels. Those are the two barometers that I'm really focusing on. But then the other piece of this whole conversation is your mindset. Mm-hmm. And I've done so much mindset work, whether it was one-on-one, you know, therapy with a clinician to Tony Robbins intensive programs to landmark education, entire curriculum for living. I've done so much work myself to understand my mindset. Oh, and now I'm down the rabbit hole of Dr. Joe Dispenza, which is a whole. I was just going to just going to bring him up. Yeah, whole other can of worms. Like yeah. So I love, I love the idea that we have more control over our experience through wrapping our hands around our thoughts. So I really would come at a conversation like this with, do you believe that life is happening for you or do you believe that life is happening to you? And that very question de- determines the victim mindset or not. Yeah. So. I mean, I look at some of the darkest days of my life and I say, how did I get through that? And I do believe because in the back of my mind, I was like, life is always unfolding for my highest good. I got to believe that life is happening for me and that what I can't see right now will be revealed to me. And I just have to learn to trust. When Can I jump in there? Because one of the things I think is important is this idea of post-traumatic growth and the question of what am I supposed to learn from this? Yes. And and I think there's some really shitty, tragic, difficult things that happen in our lives. But yeah. every time I go to that place of what is this symbolizing? What is the meaning here? What am I supposed to learn from this? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the first time I lost my right eye, I thought it took me a bit, but I thought, well, you know, Odin in North, Norse mythology, <clears throat> he sacrificed his right eye at the tree of life mm-hmm. in exchange for wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so maybe I'm sacrificing some of my sight for a different sense of seeing. Yeah. A different way of seeing, uh, yeah. a deeper way of seeing. When I had trouble with my left eye, I thought, okay, what am I not seeing that I'm supposed to see? Yeah. You know, like, and just looking at it at a symbolic level, um, I think was really helpful. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, and that's awesome to be able to take a step back and look at that. The problem is, I think so many people get stuck in um, the, the mindset, why me? Like, why me? Why is this why happening? Me, why this? Why now? Yeah. Right. Like, why? And honestly, like, you know, for me, I think, I think we have to hit rock bottom before we can actually teach resilience, before we can actually have a conversation about it. We have to have lived it. And you clearly have lived through some things. And I too, I mean, like I tell the story, I went to court on a Monday to divorce my ex-husband. And two days later, I lost my job. Yeah, so in, in one week, like oh. seriously, like in one week, yeah. okay, so I better learn. I better learn real quick. What does it mean to bounce back? What does it mean to pull yourself so out of what, that? What would have happened if you would have taken those two hits personally? And I'm sure you did for a, for a period of time. Oh, I did. Are you kidding? No, I'd be lying if I said I just bounced back victoriously. Are you kidding? No, so I think that's part of it is to give oh. yourself room to feel, yeah, to wallow in your to self pity, right? Like. And then the resiliency to me is how quickly can you bounce back from that? Yeah. What are you going to do with it? I say like from your mess, make your message. I think for me, I I had to sit in that. I had to sit in it. I had to feel it. I had to realize I had to be with the fear. There's so much fear, right? Like there was so much fear. How am I going to, how am I going to provide for myself? There's nobody but me. Like both of my parents have passed away. Now I don't even have... Uh, you know, a partner who could have my back. I'm doing this thing alone. How do I do it? You know? Um, And then I just, you know, of course I surrounded myself with good friends and good people. And I leaned into a lot of what I had learned and said to myself, okay, well, you're at the bottom of the barrel now. So there's only one place to go, but up. So you get to create it. Like the pen is in my hand. I get to create. So that's exactly what I, I did. So what are some other tools that you use to promote resiliency with clients or in corporations? Yeah, you know, there's so many little things. So it's interesting. What I thought resiliency was is is a, was a little bit different than what I've learned over the past, I would say, two years. I would say the last 16 months I've been coaching a little, a little, uh, a little under that, maybe 15 months I've been coaching one-on-one, but 
so you get a whole suite of data, right? So we're like right now I have, I'm coaching about 50 educators, which is ludicrous. Like it's, it's a lot, right? Yeah. But I learned a ton of what people are really struggling with. And so one of the things I see that we always circle back to is the falling into the day. So many people are falling into their day. They have no control. They're not setting themselves up to have a good day. They're at the effects of their life. They're at the effects of stress that's coming at them. They're not taking a pause to fill their bucket. They're not giving themselves a chance to have a good day because they wake up in the morning and then they hit the ground running and the cortisol levels are through the ceiling and they've taken no time for themselves to nourish themselves, to ease into the morning, to give themselves a chance to feel good for a moment before they start their day. So that's one of the biggest things is people do tend to just be at the effects of life and and not um, create a space for themselves in the morning before they start their day. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think part of that to me is they're, I think we get addicted to having that sympathetic or yeah, sympathetic nervous system. It's stuck in the on position. So that fight, mm-hmm. flight, freeze, fawn totally. system. And you know, you were saying cortisol and I'm thinking adrenaline and those neurotransmitters are addictive because then we feel important. We feel busy. We feel like we're doing stuff and getting stuff done, yeah. but it comes at a huge cost. It does. And I would say the cost is happiness and health. Yeah. I think about even like, I think about the impact, the long-term impact of even meditation and your ability to naturally be calm, naturally show up calm, naturally feel a state of grounding you know, and I, I like, I want that for every one of my clients. And that's why I'm like a big advocate for, Hey, if you feel like you can't sit for 20 minutes and meditate, I'm going to give you a three minute meditation. I just, I really want you to just try three minutes every day. And, and most of them, I would say 90% of all my, all my coaching clients are meditating now because they realize they're like, Oh, well this, this this is actually what's helping me be able to deal with the ridiculous amount of stress coming at me from my personal and my professional life. Um, when I, I remember yeah. like I, when I was seeing my therapist, who was also formerly a, I guess, a high level monk. So yeah, it was kind right. of this amazing combination of uh-huh. skills. <clears throat> he was, one of the things he would do is if I start to get triggered in session, if I'm starting to get amped or aroused, he would say, do you love your daughter? I was like, yeah, absolutely. It's like, okay, so I want you to take a few deep breaths and I want you to feel the love that you have for her and feel mm-hmm. her love for you and feel it in your chest, warming you up and expanding. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that feeling is a mandala, a doorway yes. into another state of consciousness. Yes. And it, and it makes, you know, you mentioned Joe Dispenza and yes. one of the things I was reading about in this latest book of his, I don't know if it's the latest book. It's one of the books, book I'm reading right now. It's that idea that it's not just enough to think the thoughts like healing thoughts, right. for example, you have to be in a positive emotional state, yes. say gratitude, yes. and combine those two in order to get in touch with that quantum energy or quantum healing mm-hmm. field. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's so true. Listen, it's a feeling universe. If you sit in a state of anger or frustration or uh, upset, you are energetically projecting that out and inviting more of that back in your life. So uh, the other really pivotal piece of the morning routine, I call it the body armor for the day, is gratitude and meditation. I say like, take 15 minutes, just do a little gratitude, a little meditation. I'm telling you, it is like body armor. It's the way I explain it. To the average person, um, the gratitude in the gratitude practice, it is much more than reciting three things that you're grateful for. It's getting in the state, just like Dr. Joe says, getting in that state of the why, really feeling the emotion of why you're so grateful. What is it that you that you truly love about what you're identifying that you're grateful for? Because the more you can sit in those feelings and those emotions, the more you're admitting that like love and that um that peace and that gratitude out in the world. And then that's gonna, you know, return to you and it feels good in the process. Yeah. And and one of my favorite forms of meditation is loving kindness or metta. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I love the piece of, you know, imagine yourself, well, first you imagine someone that loves you very much. And then you imagine the two of you together. And in my mind's eye, it's you're sitting cross-legged facing each other with a circle around you. Yeah. And as you get in touch with that emotion, the love you feel for that person and the love they feel for you, you can visualize tendrils or tentacles of yeah. love extending from your chest to the other person and vice versa mm -hmm. and truly get in touch or try to get in touch with that feeling of, wow, I'm really loved by this person. And I, I think for many of us, I'll speak for myself. I think for me sometimes, or it used to be hard to comprehend how much another person actually loved me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's all ingrained in us as little as little ones, right? Our experience with our parents, if we don't know what that's like, if that's not familiar, we don't know, you know, it's it's a little foreign to us. So, yeah. yeah. Well, if you grew up in an emotionally cold household or you're emotionally repressed, really? which I think most of us did, if not abusive. Conditional, conditional love. That's what I knew. And that's what I'm learning. Like through a lot of Dr. Joe's work, I'm learning that love love doesn't need to have conditions. But when you're raised in an environment like my mom, emotionally unavailable, like everything was conditional. You do this, you get that. You, do, you, you prove yourself, then you'll get that. And I think so many people walk around not knowing that they're, you know, truly wrapped up in a conditional love they they know no nothing else so yeah. you know ignorance is bliss but when you start to really unpack your your history and your life and start to see you know why am i attracting people in my life it forces you to look in the look in the mirror and say well, well why? why why do i feel the need to actually do all of this stuff why can't i just be me am i not worthy of love mm -hmm. it's like this whole big unpacking it's fascinating well i think that that thought of and I don't think it's a conscious thought for most of us. I think it's a subconscious thought of, I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of receiving it. Right. And I'm not good enough to give it. And, and I think those two can really hamstring us. Totally. I think it's actually easier to give it than it is to receive it for most of us. Yeah. Unless your motive for giving it is to receive. Yeah. <laughs> That's another issue, right? Like, yeah. Like I had, I remember this, like I had a boss once when I was a very junior people leader. And I remember I had the most difficult employee that I was leading. And I remember giving her a birthday present and she did never even acknowledged it. And so my boss sat me down and say, said to me, why did you give her the gift? I go, because it's her birthday. And I wanted to express myself to her that I appreciate her. And he was like, well, did you give it to her because you were expecting a response? Because you were expecting gratitude from her? Like, what, what was the motive you were coming from? And I was like, oh, hot dog. Maybe there was something there. Like, was I giving to receive or was I genuinely giving? Very different. So it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I like there's some distinction between present and gift. And I don't know which is which. I never remember. But one is you give someone like at Christmas or Hanukkah, you give them a gift because they will like it and you expect nothing in return. The other one is you give them a gift that you like and you want and you will get some benefit from it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about your personal experience of depression, because then I want to get into how you coach people to stay ahead of depression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I always viewed mental illness as something that was over there with my mom being adopted. I was like, oh, I'll never deal with any type of mental health challenge. I don't have her blood. You know, it's not whatever nature versus nurture. I've had these conversations with clinicians all the time and I'm like, no, no, no. I didn't expect this to happen to me, but I had always dealt with seasonal depression being in New Jersey in the wintertime. It's so hard. So I would just be like, okay, seasonal depression, few months and then I'm fine. But when I went through my divorce, I found myself really struggling. So that's when I was diagnosed with depression. And for, fortunately for me, I had already been doing a lot of the work around raising awareness about encouraging people to reach out and get support and not suffer in silence alone. So I had to almost practice what I preach. So I reached out to a Don't clinic. Don't you hate that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, pisses me off. Like I knew, <laughs> like I knew I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to get out of bed. I really don't want to do much. I really just want to sit around and eat. And this is not healthy. Yeah. I am depressed. Like I'm clear and depressed. So I reached out to an amazing clinician, um, a psychiatrist here in New Jersey who I absolutely adore. And, um, and I got myself into care, which was really important for me. And I remember asking him for medication and he was like, Michelle, this is a life event. I don't, 
I don't think that that's a good idea. I want you to identify some healthy vices. So he challenged me to find things to help myself, which I think in so many ways was the greatest gift that he could have ever done. Um, And so knowing that I had to feel the feelings and navigate this on my own, I needed to find ways to do that. So it was ironic that my cousin reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm training for the New Jersey state triathlon. Why don't you? And I was like, I've never done any type of race. Like, are you kidding me? Like, no, but I said, okay, I guess I'm going to take this on. And it was exactly what I needed. So, so here's the lesson for me. When all of your life is in a bad place, like my relationship wasn't in a good place. My, my work at that point, I had, um, I, I wasn't happy in my role. This was shortly before I lost my, my position. Um, I knew there was one area I had full control over and that was my health, right? No control over relationships, no control over job. But what I do have control over, I'm, I'm going to focus on. So that actually gave me a lot of momentum. So I, was, I had to focus on my diet if I wanted the energy to train because I was training three, four times a week. Um, so my diet got better. My exercise routine was, was, very, um, was very consistent. That helped me feel better physically. And that gave me a lot of positive momentum. When I finished the race, the sense of accomplishment that I got was exactly what I needed. So for me, that exercise piece gave me a lot of uh, positive momentum in the right direction. And then that eventually bled into the other areas of my life. So, you know, I, I always say movement is, is so powerful. In my case, it was, it was like life's, life-changing. Well, and I think it, I imagine it added to your sense of self-identity that totally. you know, if everything else is kind of, forgive me for saying this crap in your life at yeah. the time, I'm yeah. projecting. Um, and then you have this one area that you can control and you're feeling good yeah. about yourself. Cause every time you go out to work out or train, you, you feel good about that. And you so do. it's a concrete step that you can take that. And it, I mean, it makes me think of, there was a study a while back and I forget the exact uh, percentages, but they broke up severely depressed people into three groups. They had people that would just exercise. They had people that took antidepressants and they had people that took antidepressants and exercised. And then they followed them for several years to look at relapse rates. And the group that relapsed the least was the group that only exercised. And the conclusion was because it boosted self-efficacy that you felt that you now had some control over this beast called depression. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's awesome. I like that. For me, it just worked. And so that's why it's part of what I do teach when I when I review with people. So my formula is I go through a resilience audit. And one of the things, one of the 22 questions in the audit is, do you exercise? Do you move your body? Or are you sitting all day? Are you doing anything to get your heart rate up? Because this is so important. I mean, I know firsthand how it helped me. So if you're saying I'm depressed, my stress is through the roof and my energy is through the floor, like you have to look in the mirror and say, is there room for me to move my body? It's it's the easiest, quickest change yeah. we can make. And yeah. and I think start in small steps for those of you who haven't, you know, been moving, like go for a walk for five minutes. Go for a walk. Yeah. That's and then exactly build what from I say. there. Yeah. And I mean, there's times when I've been depressed and I'll tell myself, okay, just go to the gym and stretch. Yes. And so I have these really small self-compassionate goals. And usually what happens is when I get to the gym. You do more. You, it, you fall into that subconscious subroutine of just, okay, I was stretched. Well, let me just hit a couple machines or yeah. the mic for a little bit. It's yeah. never going to be like the best workout ever, but all there. of it feels good afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Like at least I got to the gym. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to not do the self-assault. I think one of the things I hear in my clients all the time is like the beating themselves up. They come to the call. Well, Michelle, I said I was going to do these things. I didn't. God, I'm such a loser, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And they just beat themselves up. And I'm like, so is that helpful? (laughs) Is the self-assault helpful? Like I had a mentor once used to say to me, Michelle, stop talking bad about yourself, about my friends to me. Like, stop, you know, like the self-assault doesn't serve us. So like just doing a little bit is moving the needle. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I always say like incremental change 
can yield to big results. Yeah. Just small steps is the way to go daily. So let me ask you this, because this is something I've wrestled with personally. To what extent did you feel shame about your depression? Um, I think, I don't know that I felt shame. I felt, um, I don't think I felt shame. I think I was just so like, I had, I had learned about how many people were struggling and I knew definitively I wasn't alone. The average person might not have known as much as I did about the numbers because I had been talking about mental health. I'd been promoting my book. I had been realizing the data and how many people were suffering in silence. So I didn't, I wasn't really ashamed. I thought, well, this is showing up for me to really get a different perspective of mental health, mental illness. So this is actually not bad. It's not a bad thing. Um, so I didn't really feel a lot of shame, to be what honest. About other emotions, like meta emotion about your mood. So in other words, there's been times in my life where I'll be in a depressed mood and I'll be angry at myself, <clears throat> pardon me, for being depressed, or I'll feel guilty because I'm depressed, or I'll feel sad about being depressed, which is ironic. Yeah. I mean, I think like guilty about not doing what I know I could do maybe like, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is not easy. There's a lot of highs and lows. And like, so when I was still like navigating that, as I started my business, I would be angry at myself for not doing more in a day than I, that I knew I could do because I was just trying to figure out how do I do this entrepreneur thing of highs and lows and deal with my depression. Right. So I think I would be angry with myself. So yeah, like some of those emotions, like you could be doing more, like, why are you not doing more? Like you're starting your business. Right. So maybe beating myself up a little bit for not being as intentional as I could have been with my time. Okay. And I mean, just to circle back to the shame piece to finish my thought there. um, So I, I think as a man, I've felt shame at times in my life because I feel deeply because I get depressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I realized I had a radio show in the Bay area almost 20 years ago. And I realized, geez, if I can't talk about this as a professional in mental health, who the yeah. hell can? Yeah. And then I realized, Oh shit. That means I've got to share on radio that part of my DNA is depression. Part of it's anxiety. And that scared the crap out of me. Yeah. But I, I went ahead and did it anyway. And what I found was, the, the abuse, which I anticipated never materialized, but yeah. more importantly, the shame that I felt about it, it doesn't stand up to the light of day. Yeah. So there was some support and people were understanding and grateful that I shared. Yeah. And so it, it does help with the shame, I think, to share it with people. Yeah. You don't I mean, go on a radio show, but you know, yeah. share it with well, others. I think, listen, you raised such a valuable point because there are so many men that suffer in silence and isolation. Just, I want to say like a couple of weeks ago, one of a male, a male educator in one of the schools that I am in uh, took his life. And, 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 And so many men, I know so many men don't realize like that. So what you're doing and shining a light on it and being vulnerable creates a pathway. That's my point. Like we need to help our men. Our men are the ones that, you know, this just are so they ruminate in their minds and they don't feel like they need to talk about it or acknowledge it. And I think that's what leads to so many male suicides and, and it's just not right. We have, we yeah, have we to bottle it up. Yeah. Yeah. We don't talk to anyone about it and it gets worse and worse. And I've had several friends commit suicide throughout my life. I mean, not even, you know, counting people that I know in the community. Yeah. Um, and so let me actually, since you brought that up, mm-hmm. can I go through the um, male, the differences between male and female depression? Why not? Symptoms? Yeah. Why not? Uh, real quick, let me just read this, this list. And it's from Jed Diamond's book, The Irritable Male Syndrome. And I think it's brilliant. So the way that depression shows up in females typically are things like blames herself for problems, yeah. feels sad and tearful, sleeps more than usual. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a hard time reading. No. Um, tries to be nice, vulnerable and easily hurt, withdraws when feeling hurt, often suffers in silence, maintains yeah. control of anger, may have anxiety attacks, overwhelmed by feelings, lets others violate boundaries, uncomfortable getting praise, yeah. feels guilty for what she does. And then there's some others, but those are kind of the highlights. Yeah. And, then if you flip oh, and, and I, 
And before you go to that, I identify with all of these, blaming myself for problems, feeling sad, sleeping more. You just want to pull the covers over your head. Uh, I, I get, I identify with all of these when I was in my darkest moments. So thanks for highlighting those. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, this is how we've traditionally thought of depression, which has been a real hurdle for us men, because we're like, oh, that's not me. And also, I think we have a reluctance to say, I'm depressed because it's typically associated with the feminine, which we have a hard mm-hmm. time with that too. Mm-hmm. But now listen to the symptoms, some of the symptoms of male depression, and you're going to see this huge theme of anger and irritability. Yes. Um, so blames others for problems, externalizes blame, feels irritable and unforgiving, trouble sleeping, suspicious and guarded, overtly or covertly hostile, attacks when feeling hurt, overreacts, then feels sorry later, feels the world is set up to fail him, loses control of anger, feelings blunted, often numb, mm-hmm. pushes others away, feels ashamed for who he is, strong fear of failure, needs to be top dog to feel safe, and wonders, am I being loved enough? And, and I love that list just because it does shine a spotlight on the fact that male depression comes out as anger and irritability and impatience. And awesome. I can't tell you how many men I'm dealing with that I'm trying to kind of tell them, hey, look, you're depressed and this is how it shows up. Also, I think there's one here that you didn't say I want to say because I think it's very real and I, and I don't want to step over it uses TV, drugs, mm. alcohol, sports, and sex to self-medicate. Thank you. Yeah, it's a huge one. We try and numb. Huge. Numb, exactly. We try and run away from those painful emotions. Yes. Instead of turning towards them and sitting with them mm-hmm. and realizing I'm big enough to, to manage this, to deal with it, and it, it will pass. Yeah. Um, so turning the... So thank you for indulging me on that. So how do you coach others to stay ahead of depression? I like yes. that phrase. Yeah, you know, I for the longest time I was promoting, you know, and really talking about, you know, humanizing mental health and getting people to openly talk about it when they when they were in a crisis mode and I was like, you know, I am not a fan of being reactive. Yes, we need to do that work to help people feel comfortable and get support if they're in a crisis or struggling really, really harshly. But I'm more about like, no, 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 no. There are proactive things we can be doing every single day. And so my whole idea is every single day we have an opportunity to fill our emotional bucket or we are inadvertently pulling away from our emotional well-being. And many people don't even realize what they're doing. I mean, it even goes down to something as simple as having the television news on in the background and not realizing your subconscious mind is listening to it. Even though you're saying to yourself, I'm not really paying attention. I'm waiting for the weather to come on. Let me just tell you. Part of you is. Your subconscious mind is paying attention to all of that. So I just like to highlight to people Let's take a look at your at your day day to day routine and what you're doing and what and what you're allowing to enter the doorway of your mind because that's the thing. Just like we protect our physical body from a bad diet, we have to protect our our minds from the the negativity and the toxicity in the world that's coming at us. Um, so I just have I have learned, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur now and the, riding the waves, the highs and lows. I have got to lean into daily practices if I want to boost my own well being and 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 kind of hold the depression at bay. So I I just really want people to be aware that there are little things they could be doing every single day that can help them feel good and boost their resilience and not sit like a sitting duck and wait to hit burnout and wait to hit depression and wait for the anxiety to overtake them. I just believe that we we can be doing more. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've told my clients that are struggling with depression is it's not enough to just do one of these things in my opinion, right? Like just exercise, right? You can't just do meditation. You can't just practice forgiveness. You can't just practice gratitude. Yep. I think that you have to do as many of these things as possible yeah. each and every day. And, and ideally you kind of rotate through them, but you, you're doing, uh, let's say three things a day yep. to make sure that your mental health is in tip top shape. Yeah. And, and or as, you, know, you still might fall victim to depression, Yeah, but then you're yeah. still, in, you're in a better place to deal with it when you get there. Yeah. Come out of it more quickly. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, the COVID has taught us 
inadvertently that it's okay to have a whole hum experience. I think one of the data points that was so revealing to me when I started coaching people was their level of joy. It's like COVID got us okay with not having joy. So now we're out of COVID and people don't have a sense of joy that they know they can have and they're accepting of that. So my question is, if you know what it's like to experience joy every day and you know that you, it's, it's possible that you've experienced that and you don't have it, then you got to take a step back and look at like, what is it that you're doing in your life that's pre- preventing you from having the experience of joy? Yeah. And, and thank you for bringing up that point. It, it makes me circle back to the point you mentioned earlier of having a bucket of emotions, right? Yeah. And I think that earlier in my career, I used to think of that as us having one bucket that ranged from negative to positive, you know, negative 10 to positive 10 with zero in the middle. Yeah. And research came out a few years ago that showed that we don't have one bucket. We have two separate buckets, a bucket for negative, uncomfortable emotions and positive emotions. I, I know the wording negative, positive is yeah. misleading because all mm-hmm. emotions have a purpose, blah, blah, blah. But it's easy to understand that way. And I think most of our energy is spent on that bucket of negative, uncomfortable emotions. And how do we empty that out? Because it's so yeah. damn painful. Yeah. And I, I think there's merit to that approach. I think that's what psychology is focused on for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. And I think simultaneously, we need to focus on how do we fill up that bucket of positive emotions mm-hmm. so that we have some enduring resources for ourselves and for those that we love mm-hmm. when we need them. And, and so one of the things I think that is powerful about Dr. Joe Dispenza's teachings is the realization that we have this addiction to the negative thoughts, to the negative feelings, to it's like our, our home base. It's oh, like yeah. our natural set point is if I'm not bitching about something, complaining or feeling like crap, then I don't know what to feel because that's become my emotional home base. Well, and also, I mean, you know, anger is big with men, right? And yeah. so I, I beseeched clients to consider taking off the anger armor because when we're in that angry, irritable, impatient place, super easy to externalize blame. So, you know, if I'm mad at you, if you just stop being such a fill in the blank, I would be fine. I wouldn't be so mad. Right. But it's giving you all my power in that thinking. And it's it's making me a victim. And then I attack from the victim mentality or victim position. Um, And I think that anger in itself is highly addictive because it's energizing. It makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel right. And those are all nice things to feel. Yeah, that makes sense. You're helping me understand men. So thank you. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so no, how do we, yeah, sorry, how do we, um, I, you know, and I love this idea that there are positives to all the emotions. There are purposes. We can look yeah. at them as signposts or messengers. So how do we reframe depression or what are some of the positives that we can pull from it? Yeah, you know, I think <laughs> contrast is a gift. I always say this contrast is a gift. Like if I didn't hit the very lowest of lows in my life, I don't think I would be where I am today. I think that all of our experience going back to the original statement is life happening for you or is life happening to you. If you can see that maybe in the moment you don't understand it, but trust that the journey is perfect, that you're here learning, growing and expanding so you can become a better version of you then you won't resist the experience of depression. It is it is an experience. It is contrast. Without having those darker moments, could we appreciate the joy and the beauty in a day when we didn't feel the emotion? Absolutely. Yeah, well put. And I think the other thing that I think of with my depressive moods <clears throat> is it gives me time and space to be away from people and to ponder and reflect mm-hmm. and to think deeply about things. And often there's some really nice seeds for growth that emerge Mm -hmm. from that. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. I really need to work on changing this or improving this. Or there's, um, there's an idea for a book or an article or a podcast. And I think, you know, most of the brilliant thinkers throughout history have had some form of bipolar disorder or depression. And when you ask them, they would say, I wouldn't change it at all. Yes. Because that's where my creativity and ideas come from. Yes. You remind me of Carrie Fisher from the movie, The Secret oh, yeah, Life yeah, of the oh. Manic Depressive. Star Wars. With, um, with Fry. Uh, who is it? Robert or Richard Fry created that movie, was the director and was in it. 
And they asked Carrie Fisher that at the end, because you know she suffered from bipolar disorder. They yeah. literally asked her, if you could remove bipolar from your life, would you? And she said, no, not for one moment. Yeah. And it's so it's like, it's revealing. You know, I think, I think the same about my mom. My mom, when she was high and manic, boy, life was beautiful for yeah, her. Yeah, it doesn't get a whole lot better. No, like, yeah. So I, I, I get it. But then when it's low, it's dark. It's yeah. dark, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I really take your point to heart of, I think the lows that we experience give us beautiful contrast and appreciation of the highs. And without those lows, the highs aren't as high. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I always say contrast is a gift. Yeah. Like even in those moments, life is showing you something, pay attention. There's always, there's always messages. And so what about, so you're a coach mm-hmm. and not, um, like a psychologist or right. a marriage and family therapist. Right. What's the difference in your mind? And why do you think people are so willing to talk to coaches versus like a psychologist? It's, it's so, it, it's the stigma. I'm, I'm convinced it's so much more palatable to say, I'm just going to talk to a coach about this because it feels, well, you know, when you think of the word coach, you think of someone who's championing you, who's encouraging you when you were in the little league as a, as a child, right? So it's, it's a more of a, it feels more supportive and less, um, Threatening. Threatening, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Like, so I I love being a resilience coach because I do get people that come to me who clearly need clinical support. And I'm the one that has the conversation with them about have no fear or embarrassment or shame. Your anxiety is running the show and you need support. So like I'm the one that wants to bridge them to care because they're choosing to talk to me. And I feel a responsibility to lead them to a professional who can really, you know, dive deep and help them. Yeah. And I've, I've always hated the phrase life coach. However, I've been doing coaching for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And I've always enjoyed that because I don't have patients. I have clients. Yes. So I don't have... The people I see aren't broken by definition. Right. No. They're looking for ways to optimize their life. Yes. And, and I think it's a much different focus and it, it tends to be more future, present and future focused, I guess, than past focused. It, it's um, an empowering and, context. It's an yeah. empowering context. I'm going to get, I'm going to get support to create my life. Right. And, and so I really like that concept of coach versus psychologist. And I think for men in particular, it works extremely well. Mm. They're far more comfortable with this idea mm-hmm. of, you know, I'm not really seeking out help. I'm not broken. I'm just, mm-hmm looking for some better ideas on how to do things. Yeah, I, I, I would agree entirely, entirely. And, it, and it's disarming. I think sometimes a, a clinical narrative is, can be very overwhelming. What I particularly see when I go into workplaces is that a lot of organizations want to slap a mental health first aid program on the mental health concerns that they have. And I've, I witnessed it in my former company we don't we do not need a clinical conversation in the workplace. We need more compassion and empathy and relatedness and support and listening. And that's why the work I do in the workplace does so well because it's non-clinical and and and, I, and most organizations don't realize the difference. Well, I, I think like I'm always leery about putting a diagnosis on anyone because I used to do that as a school psychologist in a prior career. Um, well, I don't, I wouldn't put a diagnosis, but I would say, you know, there's some ADHD tendencies here mm-hmm. or depressive tendencies here, but still, I think we got to be careful of that because those labels can become self-fulfilling prophecies oh, yeah. and, you know, to think about, you know, I, I am. am depressed I am versus yeah. depression is a part of me Yes, is two very different things. Yes, exactly. And you, you mentioned the numbers earlier. Can we circle back to that? And could you mention some of the numbers for depression and anxiety if you have them off the top of your head? You mean the numbers of how many people are struggling? Yeah. So, because well, it's, it's changed dramatically yeah. since then. It has. And, and it may have changed since I you know, know this sure. data point even. You know? uh, the one thing that we knew before the pandemic was one in five Americans would suffer from a mental health challenge in their lifetime. Since COVID, it's now said that one in three are suffering from anxiety or depression. 
It's one in, one in every third person you're interacting with every day. Yeah. And I, my, the numbers I had, and they might be, I don't know, they're a couple of years old, but prior to COVID, my understanding was about 10 to 12% of the population at any one moment in time was dealing with depression or anxiety in the mm-hmm. U.S. As COVID took hold, it became over 40%. That makes sense. And, and so four out of 10. And, yeah. and so I was trying to normalize that for people, you know, everyone that I saw, like, look, you're not alone. This is a really, right. really common experience. I mean, it's almost yes. more common than not at this point. Right. So you're just having a unusual reaction or a normal reaction to an unusual situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's a human reaction. And, as and frustrating you know, as it is. The one thing I got from uh, from so many people was the diminishing of how they were doing because we all went through COVID together. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Mm. We were not in the same boat. We were in the same ocean. We were all in our own very unique boats, having very unique experiences based on our past experience and, and traumas and life events. This unfolded very uniquely for you. And I, I like the idea that there's no hierarchy to suffering. In other words, Michelle, mm. your suffering is your suffering. Yes. And that doesn't detract from the fact that my suffering is my suffering right. and I'm not, they're not comparable. They're not, no. I'm, mine's not worse than yours or better than yours. My suffering is still my suffering. Your suffering is still your suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a hard one, I think, for many people. So I try to get people to realize that when I'm talking to them, I'm like, listen, like just because... And, and not to mention the illusion of social media having people appear to be, oh. doing, you know, doing a certain way. And I'm like, which is just on. increasing our depression and anxiety. Stop. Like, just do you just do you just focus on you and, and stop with the, the comparison. So I'm aware of time. I got to wrap up soon. Yeah. And what did I not ask you that I should have? Oh, I don't know. I think you've asked so much. We've talked about so much. Um, I, I, I love when people, uh, follow the work that I'm doing on, it sounds silly on TikTok. I'm pushing out resilience stuff on TikTok in, in a sea of like all kinds of noise in social media world. I'm constantly trying to push out content around resilience because some people don't realize the little things that they can do. So um, resilience coach Michelle on TikTok would be the place where people could go and get some free tips. And any other, you know, where people can get a hold of you, email if you're comfortable with that, LinkedIn, Facebook. Yeah. Website. So if if first of all, LinkedIn is like legit my second home. I'm always on it. If you are in a corporate environment or workplace and you want to have a resilience conversation for your staff, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, and then just I would say follow me on tips for tips for for resilience on TikTok. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I greatly appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. Me too. And thank you for inviting me and for sharing what you did and educating me on men's mental health. I appreciate that. My pleasure. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you love this episode, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 